it's, it's a great privilege and an honor um, for me to be able to, to share with you today. I want to take a, uh, the first few minutes and, and just tell you a little bit about us and what we do. Uh, John and I and our family are missionaries with Cadence, and Cadence has been around for about 65 years, 64 uh, years, doing ministry to the military, uh, and that's a very unique ministry. The, the military is a culture in and of itself. We've been with the organization since 2009, and our assignment is South Korea. We have the privilege of serving the men and women of the Osan Air Force Base stationed there. We love, absolutely love the ministry. Not so much for Korea, although we, we like Korea. Korea is not a bad place. But what we love so much about the ministry is God's work that happens there. Um, I did ministry in the States for a while. And then going over there and doing work there, we have the fabulous opportunity to see Christ show up daily, weekly, right? And, and we get to see these amazing transformations happen in the lives of people. And I think there's a few reasons for it. I kind of call Osan, the, the Osan area, a perfect storm, if you will. There are a number of factors, all of which I, I'm absolutely certain I don't know what all of the factors are that go into this perfect storm. But there are a few that uh, make it unique, um, first, it's an unaccompanied one-year assignment. What that means is that they can't bring their wives, they can't bring their kids, they can't bring the dog, and they're limited to 500 pounds of personal goods. They have a one-year assignment, and they're, they must be on the peninsula 11 of the 12 months that they're there. They're allowed a, a maximum of 30 days for a home assignment, mid-tour they call it, um, but that's if they have that much leave. If they have 60 days of leave, they can still only take 30. <clears throat> and that produces for them a sense of loneliness. And it's in that loneliness that we get to engage with them. In addition, as you're well aware, there's an ever-present danger in, from the north. And within 30 days of their arrival there, they're taken to the DMZ. You understand that, that uh, Korea, North and South Korea, are still at war. There's an armistice agreement that was put in place, but that armistice agreement is ignored by North Korea. And so they're taken to the DMZ to see firsthand what the threat really is. And their job, their, the mission of Osan is uh, ready to fight tonight. And that's really what they prepare for. They work long hours. It's 12-hour shifts. And, and there's this ever-present flow of, of threat that comes out of the north. And so that puts them in a place where they start thinking about their mortality. And then, unlike being in the U.S., there's not quite as many distractions in South Korea for them to get uh, off into. There are plenty of distractions right outside the gate, none of which are good. We have watched several train-wrecked marriages and train-wrecked lives and ruined careers. Uh, we've seen plenty of that. Uh, but you get much farther than right around the base, and you have... Uh, you have culture barriers, you have food barriers, you have language barriers, and a lot of them don't venture out too far from the base. And so there's this, this microcosm, if you will, and, and it puts an intense amount of pressure on them. And what we see is that um, where in America there's a lot of folks walking the fence, that's what I like to call it, their, their faith is this sort of part of something that they do, right? It's, it's, it's not really who they are. And so they're kind of walking this fence between a life with Christ and a life with the world. 
And what God does in Osan is he just kind of gives them a kick and boots them right off the fence. And, and they have the choice. They have the, the opportunity to decide whether or not they're going to dive into the bad stuff or they're going to lean in towards Christ. And for those that, that lean in towards Christ, we get to watch phenomenal things happen. I'm not a statistician. I don't, I don't tend to count, right? I'm much more interested in people and knowing people by face and by name than I am how many people attended what. But when we came back after our five-year assignment, we started doing some number crunching, if you will, and we started thinking through um, the last five years. And we estimate that there was about 400 people that were touched in some way by the ministry at Osan. There was about 100 lives that we can testify to that were transformed in some fashion. Those that didn't know the Lord that came to know the Lord. Those that that thought they knew the Lord but didn't have a personal relationship with Him and came to have a personal relationship. Those that had a faith that was nominal, that wasn't an active part of their life, and they moved in towards an active faith. In fact, several of the folks, I I didn't get a solid count because it was kind of, John knew some, I knew some anyways. But several of them that that were spectators in their churches and in their communities after their time at Osan, became active participants. And they're, they're leading Bible studies in their local churches. They're leading Bible studies in their homes. They're becoming deacons and elders in their churches. And that's just thrilling. And then last, the number that, that, I, that, that just warms my heart so much, six people. Six people during that five-year period of time that came through the ministry at Osan are now in pursuit of or in full-time ministry. Some of those are going to seminary and are on their way towards being pastors and missionaries, and some are actually on the field being missionaries and pastors. And that's an absolutely incredible thing. And we, we just get the privilege of being a part of it. And, and I can't imagine doing anything. In fact, when, when I got the request to come back to Colorado to have a, a short assignment here to take care of some other stuff... It really felt a little like a prison sentence. <laughs> like, please, can I go back here? Because ministry is so fruitful here. I want to tell you just a little bit about how we do ministry. What does the ministry look like in Osan? It's, it's really defined by four pillars. So those four pillars are reach, disciple, model, and send. And the reach is simple. This is the evangelistic portion of it. This is where we, we get creative, right? We, we do home-cooked meals. We do chili cook-offs. We do uh, movie nights. We do bowling nights. We do anything that we can do to get a, a group of people to get together so we can rub elbows with them and, and see if we can't intersect with their lives and join them on their faith journey. Maybe they don't know the Lord. Maybe they do know the Lord. We don't know. But that's that reaching part of it. And then we bring them in, and as we bring them in, we do discipleship. This is where the bulk of the ministry happens. This is the piece that resonates with me, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this going forward. Uh, Today I'm going to share my journey with you. Uh, Discipleship for me over the last 10 years has become an absolute passion for me. That discipleship takes two forms. It's uh, group discipleship, that's Bible studies, church, those kinds of things. And then there's one-on-one discipleship. And it's in that one-on-one discipleship that we see great traction. Because in that squeeze box, I mean, think of this. 
Think of this. I don't know if this, the first time I ever encountered this, this was the first place that I ever cut a disciple loose. Because I had other people that wanted to be discipled, and I'm a finite human being. I can only do so much, and they weren't serious. So I, I, I cut them loose to pick up somebody who was serious. That seemed really strange to me. I had to wrestle through that, right? But that's the incredible nature of the ministry that happens there. And then modeling. This, was, this is a, a crucial pillar that I believe is, is one of the primary reasons that we see such large transformation. We do ministry in our home. We don't have a, a quote-unquote ministry center. It's, it's done out of our house. And so these people who don't go out and, and be distracted by the, the town, and, and they work 12 hours, and the one thing that they want to do is get away from that job for a little bit, and, and so they come and they spend time with us. And they, they just hang. So there's people in our house all the time. And so we just model our lives. We just live our lives as a model for them to follow. We took a page... Out of the scriptures, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, and that's what we're doing. We're imitating Christ, and we're encouraging them to imitate us. And the interesting thing is, we're not hiding our foibles and our mistakes, right? They're, they're exposed. We, you, you can't pretend for very long that you have it all together, right? At some point, you're going you're to mess that up. And we don't hide it from them. What we do is we model for them how we repent and how we turn and how we move back into right relationship and how we go back and fix those things. And that has a massive impact on them. That has a a substantial impact on them. And then the fourth pillar is we send, right? Now, the military does this for us. We get them for usually no more than a year, sometimes less, and sometimes we've had actually had some people that have come through and and said, man, this is fantastic. I wish I'd have known about this months ago. We're leaving in two weeks or you know, something along those lines. Uh, but we get them for some duration of time, and then the military sends them on with orders. But we make a big deal of the sending. We make a big deal of, of commissioning them for the work of the gospel in the world. And we have found that to be very impactful with folks so that it's not just implied. They're not just thinking about it in terms of, well, gosh, that was a great experience. Now what? No, we're, we're actually giving them the next step. We're saying, now what is you go do this for someone else? Our team, and yes, it's a whole team that goes. Uh, my family, Jonna, myself, Sarah, you, Nate the last time, not this time. He's going to Germany. And... Uh, <clears throat> but we're the, we're the boots on the ground, to, to, to coin a military phrase, right? So we're the team that's, that's in country, and we're the team that is the hands and feet. But we have about 40 other team members that are the praying force that sends us. They're the financial force that makes it possible for us to do this, and they provide logistical support. And it's, it's the team that makes all the difference. You see, we encourage the folks that we're ministering to to be praying for the rest of the team, and we encourage the team to be praying for the folks and for us out there on the field, and we are connecting those together. And it's a wonderfully glorious thing. This team together, we are the instruments in God's hands to reach the world for his glory. And as Pastor Matt said, in a couple of months, we get the profound pleasure of going back for another five-year assignment. And we're just thrilled to be able to do that.
So I thought today I would take the rest of the time and I would, I would talk about the Great Commission. It seemed appropriate given the, the nature of who we are and what we do and the, the journey that we've been on for the last 10 years or so. And that can be found in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Let me open us in prayer first. Father, thank you so much for creating us, and thank you for redeeming us, and thank you for giving us a mission. I admit, Lord, that I've been on this journey for over 10 years now, and I still am amazed. I'm grateful, but I am amazed that in your infinite wisdom, you decided that the instrument, the fallen, finite, frail humanity, would be the instrument that you would use to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Thank you for the privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. These are very familiar, certainly to this group. These will be very familiar to you. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Often, as I encounter and I I hear teachings on this passage and various different things, um, all too often, the, the emphasis is on the go. And that's not the primary imperative or command in this passage. The command is to make disciples. The emphasis is not on the go. Right? I've, I've taken a moment, I, I reworded it. I just kind of re- rephrased it. And hopefully this, this will kind of um, give you a little bit better perspective of, of, without having to do all the exegetical work, this will give you a little bit of perspective about Uh, what he's talking about here in this passage. Let me just read it. Therefore, since I have all authority in heaven and on earth, I command you to make disciples as you go throughout your life, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey the commands I have given you, and I will be with you to enable and empower you to do all that I have commanded you to the very end. You see, the Great Commission is to make disciples. And it's, it's in the context of going, which is simply wherever God placed you at whatever juncture you're at. We are called to make disciples. God ordained that this would be the way. Through this great commission of making disciples, this is how he will reach the ends of the earth. With the gospel message. You don't have to go in order to make disciples. If you'll indulge me for just a little while, I want to take you on a journey. And, and this is the journey that God has taken me on over the last 10 years. And so bear with me. This is actually the first time I ever wrote it down. And I spent several hours cutting pieces out of it to stay within my time because I could be here for a few days. Uh, and I, I know that you want chili at some point. So I've broken this down into three thoughts. Okay. Um, a mission mindset, mission execution, and mission resources. Okay? Now, in order for us to get our heads wrapped around um, the Great Commission, 
and what it means for us to be on mission, we need to develop a mission mindset, right? Lest we be distracted or derailed from our primary objective. Our mission, should we choose to accept it? And that's an important note, remember? We're not robots. We're not automatons. We get a choice in the matter. And so we can, in fact, refuse to participate in the Great Commission. I believe wholeheartedly that that comes at loss. And you do that to your own peril. But we also get the choice to participate in it. And I can tell you from my own experience that participating in it is great joy. There's pain and suffering along the way. And so we need to develop a mindset that says the primary objective for my life is to make disciples. And, and all other pursuits in this meager 80 to 100 years that we are given to live on this terrestrial planet is subordinated to that primary objective. Hebrews gives us some, some language to help us get our minds wrapped around that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. and Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's a few things in there. As followers of Christ, his disciples, as it were, <clears throat> were given a race to run. And the attitude that we should have is an attitude of winning the race. And, and in order to, to have an attitude of winning the race or to be on mission, if you will, to use some military phraseology here, to be on mission means that I, I don't allow the distractions of the world to overtake the primary objective. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians. He uses some stronger language. He says, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's expressing a need here to be focused. He's expressing a need here to not be, not be sidelined by the many distractions of career and financial security and health and all of those things, but to subordinate those things to the primary objective. You see, if I allow something to consume me, you know, a career path, if you will, if I'm so focused on my career path that I have no time to make disciples, I have lost my perspective. I have forgotten the mission that I'm on, and I've gotten off and entangled in the affairs of the world more so than I should have. Now, of course, we need food, we need shelter, we need clothing, we need transportation, we need all of those things. And, and none of those things are bad in and of themselves unless they become the primary objective. If they're the focal point of my, my passion, my desire, my energy, if, if that's what those are, then we've gotten off track. And we need to realign our focus so that we are single-mindedly after the pursuit of making disciples. And that, wherever we are placed at any given time, that's our mission and that's the mindset that we need to have. Now, a couple of little notes that I want to add to that. First, we're not competing against each other. So when we, as we talk about mission and we talk about a race and we talk about winning or you know, performing the race to win the race... 
Understand that you are not racing against each other. If you're familiar with the parable of the talents over in Matthew 25, I just want to draw your attention to the servant who got five talents according to his ability and the servant who got two talents according to his ability. And when the master came to reconcile accounts, the the servant with five produced five more and the servant with two produced two more. And did you notice that both servants received the exact same reward? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. You see, sometimes we think we, we, need, to, we need to measure up to some worldly standard. Right? We, we think of some of the great theologians of the past. We, we think of the Jonathan Edwards and we think of Charles Spurgeon and, and even some of the modern ones, John Piper and Tim Keller and some of those guys. And God has given them great ministry to do. It's a tremendous responsibility and the weight that is on them is incredible. And maybe right now in this season of your life, you have one disciple that you need to be investing in. I want you to understand that when you stand before God to receive your recompense for that mission that you were given, if you were faithful to the disciple that God gave you, then you will receive the same reward as if they were faithful to the many that they were given. So don't look left and don't look right and don't say, I'm not doing as well at making disciples because this person over here has four or five or six disciples and I only have one. The number of disciples isn't the point. It's engaging with the disciples that God intersects your life with. With a passion and a fervor and a single-minded focus to equip them to do the work of the ministry. To make them complete. That's our job. That's what we're doing. And there's a bunch of processes in there. But we do. We do have an adversary. We do have someone that we're racing against. And that's Satan and his demons. Now, if you're not engaged in the Great Commission. Or you're not engaged in actively furthering the kingdom. Satan is probably not all that concerned about going on the attack with you. But if you develop a mission mindset and if you actively pursue the Great Commission and if you actively pursue making disciples and trying to, through your disciple making process, reaching the end of the, trust me, you have painted a bullseye on your back and Satan will put you in his crosshairs. And so we need to be aware of our adversary. Ephesians says it this way, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Make no mistake. Satan is focused. He's on mission. He is is not distracted by other pursuits. He is single-mindedly focused and zeroed in on derailing the Great Commission. He'll prop you up to pick you off. You need to be on guard. Be aware of your adversary. Peter says it this way. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But don't fear. Jesus has overcome the world. And while you will be a target, and there will be challenges that you must face, you will overcome them if you hold fast to what God wants you to do. Let me also, just kind of as an anecdotal piece, I want to say this. 
God is always and always has been and always will be about his own glory and furthering his own kingdom. And to that end, as we hold our lives with an open hand and we say, yes, Lord, use me. Understand what we are, what we're doing. Men and women of the military, they sign on the dotted line. And by, by signing on the dotted line, they have surrendered their life to the cause of the service that they serve to the point of death. God was pleased to crush his own son for the redemption of you and me. It is not a stretch at all to think that God won't use you, spend you, or kill you for the sake of his kingdom. And don't let that dissuade you from engaging in the mission, right? Don't let that become something that gets in your way. So that's, that's a mission mindset. Let's take a little bit of time to look at the mission execution. In order for us to, to, to take a look at the execution, we kind of need to define some terms. What, what is a disciple? Right? What's a disciple? What's a discipler? And, and how do I actually make a disciple? <clears throat> so a disciple in this context is a mentor that commits what's necessary to equip their Excuse me. The, uh, in this context, it's, it relates to those who place their trust in Jesus Christ to follow him in lives of continual learning and obedience. Uh, that's the nature of a disciple. Now, you're going to intersect with people at various different times, and they're not going to be interested in following Jesus and learning and growing in obedience. They might not be good candidates for a disciple. What's a discipler? Well, in this context, it's a mentor that commits what is necessary to equip their disciple to glorify God and to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what we're about as disciplers, as mentors. We are committed to the maturity of the disciple. And God has given us tons of resources to do that, and we're to use those resources as such. That's what I mean when I say subordinate those resources, subordinate all those other things, right? So how do we make a disciple? How do we identify who we should disciple? Obviously, you can't disciple everyone, right? You're a finite human being. God can do that, but he's chosen to allow you and me to participate in this. And in fact, you know, we, we know that if, we, if every one of us chose not to participate, the rocks would cry out. But God has given us a great opportunity uh, to participate in the work that he's doing. And it's really just that. It's we are participating. We don't bring anything of intrinsic value to this proposition, to this equation, right? God supplies all that we need in order for us to do this. We are simply to use whatever resources are at our disposal in order to make this happen to the best of our ability. I also believe that this is, this is a, the place where the Holy Spirit plays an important role. He plays a, a significant role in determining who we would disciple. You see, every person in, that is created, that is on this planet, is on a, on a faith journey, right? Even the unbeliever is on a faith journey, right? They may not call it a faith journey, but at some point in time, you're going to intersect. You're going to collide with another person. And it's in those collisions that we want to be listening to the Holy Spirit. And sometimes those collisions are merely a kind word, a friendly gesture, a helping hand. 
And sometimes those collisions result in a burden that the Spirit places on your heart. There's something about this intersection, something about this collision with another human being that now burdens me. It's in those times when you want to be looking to engage because that is the very possible start of a disciple. And you won't know until you engage how it's going to unfold. We can encounter uh, people on their faith journey in a number of different places. And these are just some, some general milestones. They're not all of the milestones, so don't lock onto them as a specific list. But you can encounter the unbeliever. You can encounter a new believer, a sinning believer, a stagnant believer, or a faithful growing believer. And, and as you intersect and collide with those people, the Spirit is going to move in you and guide you to know how you should interact with that person. Right? Maybe with the unbeliever, you need to evangelize them. You need to share the gospel. That is absolutely a part of the Great Commission. Global evangelism is actually not a command in Scripture. It's part of the Great Commission to make disciples. And so if they don't know Jesus, share Jesus with them. You may encounter them and and the version of Jesus that they were shared is not the biblical version of Jesus. And so you need to go back and show them the biblical version of, of Jesus. Right? And then, Lord willing, they will respond and then when they respond, you, you stay with them. Don't, don't leave them. Don't drop them off at the doorstep of the church. Right? They, they, they become your disciple. Engage with them and, and travel life's journey. Travel their faith journey with them for as long as the Lord allows you to do that. And, and doing whatever the steps that come along that are necessary to be done there. Right? If they haven't been baptized... Help them to understand what baptism is and, if necessary, baptize them. And then, of course, teach. Now, I don't know about some of you, but I know a lot of people that when they hear the word teach, they check out. They're like, it's not my thing. I'm I'm not a teacher. Yes, you are. Let me encourage you. You are. You are a teacher. You might encounter new believers that need Christianity 101. They need the basics. They need to know, you know what, is, what does it mean to walk with Jesus? Right? I don't even know what that means, let alone how to do it. Right? You could encounter a sinning believer in which you need to take corrective measures. At any point in time, you're going to intersect with people. Listen to the Holy Spirit. This is where he plays an important role. Well, he plays an important role in all things, but, but this one in particular. And the longer, when I started paying attention, right, I started seeing it a lot more. And now it, it, it feels so obvious to me. When I intersect the life, right, and the Spirit says, engage, right? And I go, okay, I don't know what that looks like yet, but I'm going to at least start the process. And we're going to go from there. So when we get down to that teach, teach them all that I have commanded you. That's both his written commands and his moral commands. That's, that's daunting. But, so where do we go? Well, well simple. This. This is, the, this is the instruction manual. And I would encourage you not to deviate from this. Okay? And I'm not saying that other books 
are not helpful. But, but this is the baseline. This is where we go for the final authority. This is the authoritative word that says this, is, this outlines everything we need for life and life abundant. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As we make disciples, we are attempting to equip them to do the work of the ministry, to be equipped for every good work. And so let's take a look at 2 Timothy here just to unpack these four things. There are four things that are profitable for that come out of the scriptures. Right? Four things that the scriptures are profitable in. The first is to teach. Right? So the biblical definition of teach is simple. The activities of educating or instructing to impart knowledge or skill. This is, this is taking the instruction manual, the workbook, opening it up, understanding the truths of, that God has presented in here, and then accepting them. Right? Be, be careful not to add to or take away from the word in doing that. <clears throat> Think of it more as the, this is the classroom style. Right? In the military... Uh, they they get go through boot camp and that kind of gives them the basic instructions for how to be a soldier, and, and then they go to tech school and it's in that tech school that they learn the particulars of the job that they're going to do, and then from there they get their first assignment and they go out and they and they get the on the job training. We're going to talk about that in just a second. The second thing that uh, is profitable by the scriptures is, is reproof. Now, reproof, hear this, the biblical definition is the act or expression of criticism and censure. And we don't want to do that. We definitely shy away from doing that because it's uncomfortable and it puts the relationship in jeopardy. But let me, let me encourage you, don't shy away from this and understand you are not the one doing the reproofing. It's the scriptures that are doing the reproofing. When your disciple is sinning, the scriptures is where you take them. You're the messenger, right? And we love the phrase, don't shoot the messenger, right? But you're the messenger. The, the Bible does the reproofing. So let it do the reproofing. But please don't, don't gloss over it. Don't pretend it's not there. And don't wait a long period of time. Now, let me tell you my experience with this. Uh, I'm not going to watch my time, but my experience with this is that more often than not, they don't respond well. I've had them get up and walk out. I've had them say not so nice things. But the majority of them, after going away for a little while, they come to their senses. And then they come back. And what a beautiful thing it is when they come back and they say, you know what? I was really mad at you. Really, really mad. But you were right. Well, I wasn't right. The scriptures are right. <laughs> okay? And it just they needed some time. So, so don't be fearful. You've, they've already, as you've taken them on as a disciple, they've already given you a tremendous amount of influence and trust they've opened their lives and they've let you in to speak into their life don't don't be afraid to use the bible to correct them 
when necessary, to reprove them. The third thing is correction. That's a little bit different than reproof. Correction is in, along the lines of training. Co- correction is defined this way. It's the act of offering an improvement according to a standard, the Word of God, to replace error or mistake. Now, this is different than reproof because reproof is a stern stop. Don't do that. Correction, uh, where, where I see this play out a lot is um, we all have a life experience that we're drawing from, right? And we've all, we've all picked up a lot of stuff along the way. And we've, we're all operating out of those experiences and out of the knowledge that we have. And is it safe to say that our experiences are incomplete and that our knowledge is incomplete? And so oftentimes there's sin that's happening, there's errors in theology, there's lack of understanding that produces wrong results. All of that oftentimes is based in ignorance or based in wrong teaching, etc. And so we come to the word and we go back and we correct those wrong thinkings using the word so that they have right thinking, which produces a right attitude, which produces a right action, which produces right consequences. And then lastly, training in righteousness. That's, the scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. This is the, this is the modeling phase, if you will. If, if teach is the classroom, this is the coaching. This is where we come alongside them and we walk life's journey with them and we spur them on. Right? We make minor course corrections as needed. We continue to fill in the gaps. When a military person gets to their first assignment and they're a mechanic on a $35 million aircraft, the Air Force, in its infinite wisdom, does not just simply turn them loose with a toolbox and say, go for it. Right? You, you finish tech school, right? You know everything there is to know about this airframe. And yet, no, they assign them a seasoned, experienced technician to go along with them because now they need to take what they were taught and they need to put it into practice. And it's in this practicing. Now, now some of them got through tech school just fine and didn't make it through here and got washed out. And so just simply teaching, and this is where preaching is helpful, but walking alongside them and providing application for teaching is super valuable. It's incredibly valuable. And so take that opportunity to train. You see, you don't have to be a teacher with all the knowledge. But you do have to be a discipler with the instruction manual. That's the key, is the instruction manual. Everything that we need, everything, including the Old Testament, by the way. I use it a lot. In teaching, but I also use it a lot as practical applications. I love the Old Testament. It gives us a great picture of the guys that did it right and the guys that did it wrong. Right? I mean, some of them really messed it up. I mean, they really messed it up. And yet God gives them opportunity to make it right. Shows them the error of their way. What a beautiful picture that is. And we can use those things as we walk through this journey. That brings us to the third thing, mission resources. What are the mission resources that we have to be on mission with the Great Commission? Well, we have the Word. 
That is our primary tool. That is a primary resource that we have. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit that leads us into these intersections and that guides us through. You know, sometimes you and you're work, walking along with your disciple and they hit you with something and you're like, whoa, I have no idea how to handle that. And you go to the Word, and it, as much as I would love this to be a magical book that you opened up and it said, Michael, right now I want you to do this. Right? That would be awesome. It doesn't do that. At least mine doesn't. If yours does, I really want to get a copy of yours. Uh, <clears throat> but sometimes you have to go away, and, and, and it's okay to say to them, wow, we're going to have to do some digging, and we're going to have to do some praying, and we're going to have to figure this out together. But I'm with you. Let's walk this journey together. So don't be afraid to not have all the answers as you walk through that. But you do have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And then we have the promise of his presence. Lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. As I was reading through some different things this last week, I came across a commentary. And I just loved the way it was written. The way he, he unpacked this little phrase. And so I'm just going to read it to you because I couldn't figure out a way to say it better. Because he had enjoined them on great things to raise their courage, he says, Lo, I am with you always. Every word is emphatic. The ascension was at hand. This implied an absence of his visible presence to be replaced by a spiritual presence, more perfect, potent, effectual, and infinite. It is I myself, I, God, and man, who am, not will be, but am henceforward ever present among you with you as companion, friend, guide, savior, and God. I am with you in all your ministrations, your prayers, public and private, baptisms, communions, exhortations, doctrine, discipline, and this. Not now and then, not at certain times only, but all the days of your pilgrimage, all the dark days of trial and persecution and affliction, all the days when you are gathered to your rest and have committed your work to others' hands, my presence shall never be withdrawn, not for a single moment. That's the power that's behind the command to go make disciples. That's incredible. You are never alone in this pursuit. To wrap this up, we are commanded to be disciple makers. And to do that, I believe we need a mission mindset. We need to be aware, alert, prepared, focused, and equipped to execute with effectiveness the mission we have been given. We have the right tools. We have infinite power at our disposal. If God is with us, who can stand against us? To take a phrase out of the military, simplify, always faithful. Shall we run the race that God has set before us with an objective to win the race so that we too will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. Amen?